Hello. Welcome to North Coast Calvary Chapel's audio podcast. Today we have a special Easter sermon from Pastor Mark Foreman. They've been going strong. Good Friday, Saturday night, down on the beach, Sunday morning. And by the way, you may not know it, but we have several worship teams that all volunteer. They, they all want to be on the worship team. We don't pay them. You know, a lot of churches, you know, just find somebody and pay them. But uh, they're family. This is their ministry. Uh, so they take a shot, and then you don't see them for three weeks, and then they're back again. And, but when they're on, they're on. They're on the entire weekend. So I just appreciate And they're all the real deal. No matter how deep you cut into the wedding cake, it's good cake. You know, they're, they're not just frosting. They're the real deal. Yeah. Uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to Nick and uh, Crystal give the announcements, uh, the, all the banter that goes on, and, and uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. But then when they came backstage, I was telling him that I kind of flinch whenever I hear that last song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow, because I split my head open once uh, on the word face as I was singing that song. Because he lives, I can face, bam, I ran into a, uh, a pole <laughs> and uh, seven stitches, you know. So every time I hear that song, you know, it's just, sorry. <laughs> yeah. So today, Good Friday, I want to, I know you saw some of the pictures from the beach. Did we show them all, uh, Joseph? Can you show us maybe a couple more? Oh, yeah, the wave. Yeah, isn't that fun? New life. New beginnings. I look like I'm going to attack somebody, but... uh, They don't look worried. And some kids wrote this on the sand. Jesus is on the loose. That's pretty cool. I think we have uh, some shots of uh, what took place over in Nepal uh, today, earlier. You know that they're on a different time zone. uh, So they're about 14 hours ahead of us. Uh, But these are Christians. The last time that they can publicly go out celebrating uh, the resurrection on the streets. Uh, The Christian movement has just been huge over the last uh, 25 years. So many believers becoming Christians, but uh, whereas they used to be persecuted, um, I know we think about Hinduism as being many roads to the top of the mountain, very accepting, but unless you have a different mountain and a different road, and, and so they've been persecuted for much of their life uh, in Nepal, but there, there's been increased restriction now that they've had all of this openness. They just in the last few years have been able to publicly bury their dead. Uh, that has not been allowed. That Hindus can, but Christians can't. Um, and uh, so, uh, of course, Hindus they, they have a funeral pyre, and so the, the, it's a long story about that. But so uh, this is the last year, and. Um, uh, we'll see. I can only imagine if, if Americans were told by the government, you cannot worship Jesus 
publicly anymore. Um, it wouldn't sit well with Americans, all the Davy Crockett's and Daniel Boone's sitting out there, you know, it's just like, you know, I'm going down in flames. I'm worshiping Jesus. So we'll see. I, I hope that there isn't increased persecution, but there is. They passed an anti-conversion law that, uh, that you cannot convert, be, convert. And the reason for that is, is that to keep uh, the caste system the way it is. And, you know, in our world, we see the caste system as racism, you know, that you, you can't tell someone that you have to forever clean gutters and, and uh, clean sewers because of your caste, and uh, the Brahmin caste gets the free ride. So, um, but if you change the caste, the whole world changes, and uh, the people in power don't want that to happen, and so uh, now the Christians have to figure this out. It'll be quite a journey, but I share that with you because I think it puts your Christianity in perspective, right? That... Um, what we have is something very, very precious. We need to really value the freedom that we have as well as um, share that good news with others. Well, this morning, I've prepared a message for you that I'm excited about. I've obviously given it a couple of times, uh, but uh, it's Jesus on the loose. Uh, we've talked about this a little bit in our congregation here but this great, great idea, we celebrate today that he is risen from the dead. One of the problems that we all face with Christian lingo is that once we hear a word over and over and over again, we kind of become anesthetized to that so that its impact is lost on me. So when I hear Jesus is risen, that, sh that should be completely radical. Do you know anybody who's risen from the dead? I haven't met anybody. It should be so radical, but because we've celebrated so many e Easter's, uh, we just say, well, yeah, that's what he did. What, what do you expect? Uh, let's go out to eat. <laughs> so how do I get around that? And one of the ways to get around it is to use a different phrase. Rather than he is risen, he's on the loose. That's a different perspective. So I used this down in, on the beach, and I said, so what if we found out that there was a walrus that had escaped SeaWorld, and he was out in the Pacific Ocean, and he had been seen numerous times on Ponto Beach? Well, I can tell you how it goes. All the people that I want eye contact with would be looking to see if they can get, see a walrus, to see a sighting of a walrus because he's on the loose. The other night I was in my backyard just sitting there enjoying myself. I guess I was rather stationary. Uh, I have a little $89 fire pit there that I just bought and I was enjoying it. And, uh, but because I was still, I suppose it didn't bother the animal, but I looked between my legs and a skunk went right between my legs. <laughs> yeah, escaped that bullet. Um, and he just went on his merry way. Uh, but you know, I started looking around. <laughs> are, are there any other critters that are gonna be wanting to pass through my legs? Because they're on the loose, right? So if Jesus is on the loose rather than just nicely risen, what does that mean? 
If he's on the loose, what does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean for your marriage if Jesus is on the loose and can come into your marriage? What does that mean if Jesus is on the loose for your business and he can come into your business? Into your family and how you raise kids or kids how you treat parents. What does it mean to have Jesus on the loose in your neighborhood? It's a whole different perspective, isn't it? So it's not just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, my pet Jesus. But we tend to shrink him down. When I used to have hair, <laughs> and I would go to a barber, I would always look at the barber's hair to see if I wanted that haircut, because barbers tend to do that. You know, they, they can't help themselves. They've decided what is the best haircut, and it's what they give themselves, and they see you coming in, and they say, mine, my precious. You know, so if, if it's not the haircut I want, I get out and I go find the other place. Now I just put number one on my, on my razor, and, uh, and, and I pay myself, and I tip myself, and, and go get some ice cream. But sometimes we give Jesus our haircut. You know, and, and Jesus just happens to be just the way I want him to be. Isn't that amazing? So he's the salvation Jesus. I prayed the prayer, I checked the box, and now I'm going to heaven. Now I live out however I darn well please. Or he's the social justice Jesus. I'm not in church. I don't care, really care about the spiritual stuff, but I really care about justice. Social justice Jesus. Or... He's the church Jesus. I only get spiritual once I'm in church. And then I get crazy when I'm outside. You see, Jesus is often cut down to fit me. It's almost like a cookie cutter that comes down on Jesus and then we peel away the dough and throw him away. But what if he's, he, he's gonna be who he is and no matter how we imagine him, there's even the cultural Jesus. You can read about him oftentimes. The, the, the Newsweek Jesus or the Times Jesus of this is the way Jesus ought to be or the historical Jesus. He really didn't rise from the dead because we said so. But what if Jesus is Jesus, big, robust, alive Jesus? And what if that's what it means to raise from the dead? It's a different perspective. We can't contain him. We can't restrain him. He's on the loose. So this morning, we're going to look through the eyes of Mary, Mary Magdalene, and see what we can learn about this risen Jesus. Father, be with us, we pray. Open our hearts, open our minds. Let us see what you have for us. And Jesus, we pray, because you are alive, you would do all that you desire in our hearts and lives. In your name we pray, amen. In John chapter 20, verse 1, we read this. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. This Mary, by the end of this morning, you are going to love this Mary. She's up early before dawn 
to prepare with some other women. We find out from Matthew and Mark and Luke, there were other women, but John particularly periscopes on Mary to tell us her, her story. They had prepared spices on what we know to be Good Friday when they buried Jesus because it was the Passover. They had not the time to finish the proper burial procedure. What the Jews would do was different than the Egyptians. They didn't embalm, but what they do in honor of the body is that they would take oils and spices and they would mix it and and wrap then the body as they pull the gauze through the oil and spices, they would wrap it around the limbs and the body, the trunk of, of the deceased. And it was a way of them working out their grief. It was a way of thanking God for the temple that God had given them and to give them uh, an honorable burial. Within a year, uh, the body would be decomposed and they would come back in and gather up the bones and put the deceased in a smaller coffin. And in a tomb of a wealthy family, there would be shelves inside for all the different family members where when someone else died, you could look on that shelf and there was Aunt Mabel and there was Uncle Bill and they were, they were all there. So it wasn't an embalming. They understood uh, the life process, but it was a way of honoring. And so this is what Mary wanted to do and that's why she's coming while it's still dark to the tomb, but when she gets there, this is Sunday morning, the first day of the week, when she gets there, the, to- the stone had been removed. Now, this, there is a Greek word for rolled back, but the word is removed, and I want you to look at the screen so you can understand what I'm talking about. This is Gordon's garden tomb, that Gordon was the one who discovered it, And some people think that this is the actual tomb that Jesus might have been buried in. It's a phenomenal tomb. It's well-preserved. As you can see, it's only been patched here. And it at one time was lower because tomb doors were usually only about three or four feet high. You weren't to go in very often. And that allowed for the cylindrical stone that would roll over the door to not be so big. So in front of this door, you can see there's, there's a stool to help people step over and look inside, but there's a trough right here that's about 14 inches wide. And in this trough rolled a 10 to 12 inch stone that weighed 2,000 pounds. And they would carve out and prepare these stones and they would set them in the trough. And this trough is slanted, so when the stone is released, it rolls naturally into place right here so that no grave robbers can get in. Who can move 2,000 pounds? But until it's in this place, they would roll it back and, and wedge it so that it sat there while the, stone, the, the tomb was being prepared or why, while another body is being put in the tomb. So this stone had been rolled in front of the tomb, and we know from Scripture there was a Roman seal that was put on it. You know what a seal looks like. Yeah, that's what you're to imagine. So the seal effaced to this wall, and it effaced to the stone, 
And if you broke the seal, you had to deal with Rome, the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world. You just broke the law. On top of it, there were Roman soldiers that were placed here to guard the tomb. So when Mary gets to the tomb, the Roman soldiers are not there, and the seal is broken, and the stone is removed, meaning it's removed from the trough. So it's not just simply rolled back, it's sitting, the bottom of it is out here leaning against the wall. Now you're the detective, what's happened? What is going on here? Now Mary, who was she? There's been a lot written about Mary and, and quite frankly, Hollywood loves Mary. They love to spin her as the lover of Jesus, uh, this prostitute that was converted, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm gonna give you what we know about Mary and the rest is all mythology. Are you okay with that? What we know about Mary from Luke chapter eight was that she lived in Magdala. Let me show you where Magdala was. In Magdala, it's right up here below Capernaum, along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus is from, Nazareth. And Jesus, at the start of his ministry, he moves to Capernaum and sets up headquarters up at Capernaum, where Peter, James, and John are all from there as fishermen. But just a few miles down the beach is Migdal. And that's where Jesus, early on in his ministry, encounters Mary. And the only thing we know about her is Jesus set her free from seven, seven demons. We don't know anything more. We don't know what those demons were about. We don't know how she got those demons. Uh, I like to call them critters. Uh, she had critters. And, and, and Jesus cast the critters out of her, and she was set free. Now... We probably have difficulty understanding that kind of freedom, but if, if you could imagine your mind stuck thinking something that you don't want to think, that you say things you don't want to say, say like Tourette's, or you do things habitually that you don't want to do like addiction, and that's the body you're stuck in, and then now Jesus comes and sets you free. The question is, do you love Jesus? Yeah, that guy set me free. You know, there's been, there was a time in my life where, uh, you know, I would look in the mirror and I would say, oh, it's you again. I hate you. Now, that probably sounds unusual. You probably have never not wanted to be you. But there, are, there was a period in my life where I didn't want to be me anymore. And I wondered why we even went through this life if all we are is atoms that are molecules and the feelings are just pretend feelings and nothing really matters because we all just die and we go under the ground. Well, on a painful day, you kind of begin to wonder, why am I even living, right? But at the age of 18, Jesus came into my life. And he loved me when I didn't even love myself and changed everything. So with that little amount in my life, I can only imagine Mary and the love that she had for Jesus, but she wasn't a prostitute. Now, I'm not saying she wasn't a sinner, 
And maybe she was worse than a prostitute. We all have our sins. But the point is, it wasn't until the 7th century that someone in Rome decided she was a prostitute, and then it became folklore throughout the Middle Ages. Even the Rembrandts and all the great masters who painted religious scenes, they would paint Mary as this kind of slutty gal that was just... uh, slithering over here in the corner, you know? And, 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 and then Hollywood picks up on this, and Paul, Hollywood has spun it, not only that she was a prostitute, but she was a secret lover of Jesus. And all of that's folklore. What she was, we know two things about her. She was set free from demons, and she was probably a businesswoman of means. She was one of the few women that followed Jesus' ministry from a distance and supported his ministry with her money. There were several other women, uh, Joanna, uh, another Mary, and probably even Jesus' mother Mary. They all kind of kicked in to say, we believe in this cause. So it's, it's pretty cool. Most people don't know that it was a group of women that supported Jesus' ministry. So that's who, yeah, there are women like that. So... And they've been doing it ever since, you know. (laughs) So that's who Mary is. Jesus changed her life. But now what? What do you do? You're Mary. And the whole thing has just fallen apart. Your hero just fell off the high wire without a net. And it's over. He's dead. Does that mean I'm not set free? Does that mean I'm not changed? Does that mean that... I go back to my old life. Does that mean that there's not a new world that Jesus is going to establish? Does that mean thy kingdom come won't come as it is in heaven? What does that mean? So she now is desperate for Jesus. And so she comes and she comes to the tomb. And all Mary sees is the tombstone rolled away. So she races across town, and she finds Peter and John. Let's go get the guys, the men. And so we read in verse 2, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and John probably look at each other, and they're thinking, what? And they now race across Jerusalem. It's likely the upper room was on the south part of Jerusalem, that the tomb was on the north side of Jerusalem, outside of town, or if it's where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is, it's on the west side of town. But either way, it's a quarter to a third of a mile to run. And so they're running across the cobblestone streets of Jerusalem, and it tells us in verse 3 that they started for the tomb. Verse 4, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, here's something to think about. One of the things that scholars look for when they're reading literature to see if it's myth or reality is myth usually doesn't contain graphic detail. Detail that's extraneous to the story. We don't, it doesn't matter. Does it matter to you who got there first? But John wants you to know he got there first. (laughs) I love this about John because he's the humblest of men. He writes the book of John, never giving us his name. He keeps referring to himself as 
the other disciple, the nameless other disciple. But he does want you to know he beat Peter <laughs> to the tomb. Why? Because, I mean, Peter's the first at everything. He's the first to walk on water. He's the first to speak. He's the first to draw a sword and cut off the ear of the servant. He's the first. He's just this guy uh, that kind of colors outside the lines. And John's this quiet guy, but I beat him. <laughs> so he gets there first, and he bends over, and he looks in, which you would have to do, and he sees the strips of linen lying there, but he doesn't go in. And it's kind of creepy to go into a tomb. So he's, he's now seen the body of Jesus isn't there. He sees the linen lying there. Just to be clear where this is, if you go in here to the left is this table where you would lay the body, and then straight ahead are shelves where you would put the shortened coffins with, that just have bones in it, and then to the right are more shells for other family men, members, and this would be the tomb of a very wealthy man, and we know this to be the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb for, Peter, uh, for Jesus to be buried. But Peter, when he gets there, it says he came along behind him and straight into the tomb. Just probably pushed John aside went right in and sizes it up, and he sees the same thing. He sees the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, to us, it, it doesn't mean anything. Well, what, what's, let me tell you what the original, the Greek is saying here and why it's so important for you to know this. The linen that's still in its place is telling you that the linen, that, the gauze that was wrapped around Jesus is still in that form, like a chrysalis, like a, a cocoon, that it's probably caved in because Jesus' body isn't supporting it anymore, but it's in its place. Then the material, the gauze that was used to wrap around Jesus' head to hold the jaw in its place so that it doesn't open, um, is folded up. The Greek would indicate either folded up or rolled up and separate from the linen. Curious details. You're the detective. Figure it out. What happened here? So it says, finally, the other disciple had reached the tomb, also went inside, and he also believed. He, he saw and believed. So John lets us know he's not even the first one there, but he's the first to actually believe that this has happened. They still didn't understand that the scripture foretold that Jesus had to rise from the dead, parentheses. So then the, the disciples go back to the, where they're staying. So you and I have to figure out what's going on here. What has happened? Now, Jan and I, this is to prepare you. When you turn 60, this is what you'll do with your life. On Sunday nights, she'll come, I'll come home after the service and she'll say, well, how'd it go? And I said, well, no tomatoes, you know? And then uh, she says, well, what do you want to do? And you want to watch a movie? I usually am a fast 
an action movie guy. You know, I love guys that are hanging from helicopters, you know, with one finger, and it just looks very natural, you know, and it, fighting off whatever. You know, those kind of fast action movies. Or lately, we've gotten hooked. This sounds boring. I'm sorry, kids. Uh, PBS Detective Series. So, you know, and the one lately, we're in Oxford. And I love this because the scenery is just amazing. I've been to Oxford many times. So there we are uh, outside of London in Oxford. And every night, we're trying to figure out who committed the murder. I have learned that Oxford is not a safe place to live. <laughs> Every week, someone's murdered. <laughs> Think about it. So what makes a detective murder mystery good is that you are given all the clues, and you as the viewer are trying to figure it out yourself, right? Okay, was it Colonel Mustard who did it in the library with a candlestick? Or was it Professor Plum who did it in the kitchen with the knife? And we're watching the detective series. But I've also learned what makes a poor detective murder mystery is in the last five minutes, you introduce a different character and a different instrument that you didn't even know about. And they said, actually, it was nobody. It was Aunt Matilda who flew into town. And, and you never knew she flew into town, and she's actually the one that committed the murder. I just said, that's really bad. How can, we, that's not fair to introduce a different character we didn't know about and say that's the way it happened, right? So this is a murder mystery kind of like this, only this time the body's missing. Who done it? How did it happen? And believe it or not, Thousands of people have written about this. It matters. Jesus, I mean, Paul, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're kidding ourselves. We, above all people, are most miserable because we worship every week to a God that didn't actually rise from the dead. Wouldn't that be horrible? But because he did rise... We celebrate that, that risen Savior. Well, what happened to the body? So since the Enlightenment, which the Enlightenment means we now only know by reason, we only know by science, and because we know by reason uh, resurrections don't happen, and we know by science that resurrections don't happen, then Jesus couldn't have risen from the dead. So whatever anybody believes about that didn't happen because we have decided this since the Enlightenment. So what happened? So one of the theories is the theory that started the day that Jesus was found out to be gone, and that is that the disciples took the body. Pilate and Herod, along with the religious rulers, they spun that theory. The disciples did it. Okay, let's go with that for a moment. So you're telling me there's... a. A Roman guard here, several guards, you're telling me that there's a seal here, and you're telling me that there's a 2,000-pound stone, and you're telling me that Peter, who was so afraid of ever getting hurt, denied the Lord three times, the third time with cussing two nights ago. Peter is Mr. Kick-Butt Kung Fu guy now. He is back, and he's out to kick some proverbial you-know-what, and he's going to take his band of men 
that's down down to 11, uh, and, and somehow overpower the guards, roll back the stone, steal the body, and start the rumor. <laughs> We're going to make everybody think Jesus rose from the dead, when we know he really didn't. Hmm. And when they threaten all of us, because we all will die for our faith, they all were martyred. Peter was martyred, upside, crucified upside down. Don't you think that one of the 11 disciples would have cracked and said, you know what? All right, I'll talk if you'll spare my life. We stole the body. We just, it was a prank, you know, like high school prank. We stole the body. You see, in our wisdom, we make ourselves to be fools. It, it doesn't make sense. And that would not be the way PBS detective story would say, yeah, we'll go with that one. So what's the second choice? The second choice is the guards did it. And that one is dealt with easily. Why would a guard who has no horse in this race, doesn't care about Jesus, just say, you know, let's hide the body. That'll be fun. And, and, and Herod will kill us. So that's easily dealt with. So what's the third one? The third one is the book that was handed me the day after I became a Christian. A friend of mine was concerned about me. He wasn't concerned doing all the stuff I was doing, but once I became a Christian, he became concerned. And he gave me a book about the swoon theory. And that is that Jesus didn't die. He faked it. It was a Houdini trick where he hung there with stakes through his wrists and his feet for six hours, bowed his head, said it is finished, gave up his ghost, and the, the sword or the spear of the guard comes by to make sure he's dead, jams it up into his abdomen, and out comes blood and water, the text says, but once he was laid in the tomb, it was cool, it was refreshing. After three days, he felt better. <laughs> he not only felt better, but he kind of got up. He kicked the stone away. And that's why it was removed out of the trough. You know, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery, and it exists big time in our society today, even more than when he was alive, where we somehow in the 21st century with our binoculars know more than the ancients. Those stupid little people. I mean, Peter was probably still dragging his wife by her hair back into the cave. And we are enlightened, and we know. They didn't know. We know. And so we, we spin these theories. So what's the fourth theory? And the fourth theory is that the women went to the wrong tomb. Those stupid women. It was dark. They were emotional. And they went to the wrong tomb. Now, gals, I can guarantee you that today that theory would not be spun. That women have a little bit more pout, clout and power and would say, you know what? We're tired of you saying that we're just... Uh, whatever. So think about it. These women grew up in the streets of Jerusalem. They knew Jerusalem like the back of their hand. 
They were the only ones. When the men left, they stayed at the cross. When the men left, they followed the body to the tomb. When the men left, they prepared the body in the tomb. And you're telling me now they don't know where it is. So now we're stuck. Theory one, two, three, four don't make any sense. There's no reason. This is not enlightenment. This is stupidity. So I don't know. We don't know. We don't know what happened. We've already decided resurrection can't happen because I, de I decided that with my enlightenment. So we don't know. It's right here in front of us. The clues. We as detectives, we've got to figure it out. Jan and I were down in Costa Rica a couple of months ago, and uh, we spotted an owl butterfly. I spotted it. And, and uh, just to be clear, the record, I was first to the tomb. And its wings were folded up. And if you've ever seen them on display over here in Wild Animal Park, Escondido or Safari Park, as it's now called, um, it's one of the most beautiful butterflies on the planet. Uh, when it's flying, its wings are blue. And you see this flying through the jungle. And it's just like... Uh, a, a fairy is flying, and then once it lands, it folded up, folds up its wings, and it's, it's brown and tan, camouflage, so you can't see it. It's called an owl because it has, looks like it has an eye on either side of the wing, and uh, so you think, wow, oh, don't mess with this thing. It's, a, it's an owl, but you can't see it. So I said to Jan, look, there's an owl butterfly, and she said, where? I said, it's right there. And she says, where? And I came closer. I said, it's right there. And I, she said, where? And I came closer. It's right there. She says, where? Finally, I was six inches away from the butterfly that's this big. And I said, there. And I took a picture of it. The answer to what happened to Jesus' body is there. It's right in front of us. We just can't see it if we've predecided resurrections don't happen. If we predecided that God is small and not on the loop, if we predecided that God can't do what I say He can do, then I can't see the answer. So we come to the end of the story in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, you can see there's no thought of resurrection in Mary. She is not looking for that clue at all. And as she wept, she finally bent over and looks inside the tomb. And she sees two angels seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the feet. So on this stone table, there's an angel on both sides, and they ask her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And it says here that thinking at the end of verse 15, thinking he was the gardener. Now, I probably have been to cemeteries more than anyone here, unless you're a mortician. You have me beat. But I can tell you who's at a cemetery when I'm out 
on the cemetery ground. It's the gardener, only they're not fixing and raking. They're driving these tractors, mowing the grass. You know, that's, that's, that's who's out there. So Mary is here. She's all alone, and she hears some noise behind her. She turns around, and he asks her, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Great question. We're, you know, you've been out there, grave marker, grave marker. Who is it that you're looking for? She says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Now, I want to hire this woman. She is so resourceful. She stays at the cross. She's consistent and shows up, persistent, tenacious. She shows up at 5 a.m. or earlier with a bucket of spices to finish the job. And now she's saying, tell me where he is. Oh, I'm 5'2", and I'll carry him away myself. I want to hire this woman. And Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turns toward him and she cries out in Aramaic, Rabboni. The I at the end means my. So it's literally my teacher, my rabbi, my master. We're not told what the action she does at this but we're no from Jesus because he says, don't hold on to me, for I have not ascended to my father yet. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father, and now he's your father. To my God, and now he's your God. Isn't that beautiful? So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. She told them that he had said these things to her. She's the first to see the Lord. So let's talk about this. This one word, Mary. That one word tells us a world about Jesus. He knew Mary. And he just says the word with an intonation that only Jesus used. Mary or Mary or Mary However it was, she realizes it's not the gardener. It's Jesus himself. And he knows me. I know him, but he knows me. He knows exactly how to talk to me. He knows exactly what I'm going through right now. He knows all of it. He knows me. And she grabs onto him with a death grip, as I guess we would as well. Because all my hopes had gone, and now they're back even bigger. (laughs) It's unfortunate the King James Version translated this, don't touch me, which is really unfortunate. (laughs) Don't touch me, for I have not ascended to heaven, which made everyone think there was something about his body that was not to be touched. We know that's not true, because later he says to Doubting Thomas, Put your fingers into my hands and and your hand into my side. Later, before the disciples, he eats fish to show them that he was physically raised from the dead, not just an aberration. So something different about his body, to be sure, he could walk through a closed door, he could show up and not show up, 
But nevertheless, when he was there, he was physically there. You wouldn't pass through him and, and realize, oh my gosh, I just walked right through him. Where is he? Oh, he's over there. No, he's physical there. So when he said, don't touch me, he really said, stop clinging to me or let go. <laughs> I haven't ascended. I'm still here, in other words. But this idea of Jesus using his undeniable voice to speak to Mary. And here we come full circle. From the time we lost the garden as humans, from the time we walked with God in the cool of the day, we have been wanting to get back, to quote Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, we've been trying to get back to the garden I've got to get back to the garden where God knows me and I know him. And this intimacy, the good news is God knows you. He knows everything about you, all your hopes, your dreams, uh, your ambitions. He knows the best you, which is several iterations out. But the bad news is God knows you. He knows all the things you've done, all the things you thought about doing but didn't do. He knows all the things you've hidden in the closet. He knows you, and he still loves you. I think knowing is perhaps the deepest part of love. I think that's why in the Hebrew, it uses the word for intercourse is used to know someone at the deepest level. To know and be known is what every one of us long for, only with God our maker. For him to absolutely love and know me and want to be with me, and here it is, not reject me. You know, when people get to know you, they, they suddenly don't want to be with you, right? Now that I know that about you, I don't want to be with you. Now that I know that, uh, we don't need to meet so often. So what if God really knew you? He wants to be with you. And you want him with all your heart. And in this one word, Mary, the risen Jesus on the loose tells us the biggest part of God. The biggest part of God on the loose is to come close to you and to know you, to forgive you, to love you, to be with you. Knowing that, you go back to Jesus' ministry and you realize, oh, of course, the most interpersonal man that ever lived sees a man up in a tree and he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I know you by name. Let's go have lunch together. Sees... Uh, Nathaniel coming, and he says, Nathaniel, I know you. How do you know me? Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You know me. He's the guy that leaves the 99, the good shepherd, to go out and find you. He knows you, and he wants you, and he loves you. So when we get to heaven, guess what? There's one more thing waiting for you. Yes, you'll be with him. 
And I can hardly wait to be just standing by a creek or standing by a lake. Whatever you love here is going to be like 10 times more because here we, th- we see the shadowlands of the mind of the maker, the beauty of the maker. This is the shadowlands. It's going to be epic, folks. But we get there, and I'm going to be skipping rocks at a pond or, or somewhere and hear the footsteps come up, and it's the day I long for. I'm going to be worshiping when I see him on his throne and with 10 other 100 million people. But I'm longing for that moment when it's me and Jesus. And he walks up and says my name, Mark. And I turn around and it's he and me. But the Bible says he's going to give each one of us a white stone. It's in the book of Revelation. And written on that stone that's white for purity, because you're pure now, is a name that he now calls you that nobody else knows. It's a secret name that Jesus will know you by. And no one else knows it. Kind of password on steroids, right? (laughs) And it signifies this personalness that Jesus will one day have with you and me. But because of the resurrection, that's where we're headed now. And Jesus is on the loose. So the question for you this morning is, will you let this big, big Jesus who loves you come close to you? It's a big question. Or we say, you know, that's far enough, Jesus. Uh, Jesus tries to hug me. I put out my hand. How you doing, Jesus? No hugs around here. How close will I let Jesus get to me? He said, Mary. And now he says to you, your name. And he loves you. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening this week. If you're looking for ways to serve, give, or get connected, please visit our website, northcoastcalvary.org.